Our primary reading this morning is from Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Would you now listen for the word of the Lord? So one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him in saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. And you neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And the men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. The word of the Lord. So as you are gearing up for Thanksgiving or Christmas this year, it is very likely that you are going to be hanging out with some family or relatives that, put bluntly, maybe aren't your favorite people. Like, you obviously didn't pick them to be your family, and, you know, if you could, maybe you would not have. But that's not a choice of yours, and so you might just be stuck at Thanksgiving dinner sitting in front of that mildly racist uncle drone on about whatever Fox News is telling him to be scared of this week. Or you might be having to deal with that super woke cousin who's constantly complaining about the patriarchy and white supremacy and billionaires for the reason she can't keep a job. Unless you're doing a solo holiday season, and if you are, half this room is already envious of you, but unless you're going solo, you are going to have to deal with humans that don't think, believe, vote, or live like you do. The question that we received this week for the Glad You Asked series pertains to this, and I want to read it verbatim because I like how it was written. The person asks, what is the limiting principle to inclusion slash acceptance slash tolerance? At some point, Jesus overturned tables in the temple. When can I tell if it's table tipping time? (laughs) 
Now, in some ways, we could answer this question very directly, very quickly. In the Old Testament, with the Old Testament prophets, God is most intolerant of two things. One, spiritual infidelity, be it either worshiping God or treating God like a cosmic vending machine. And two, injustice, be that either active oppression or passive corruption. In fact, we can see this reflected, for example, in our first scripture reading this morning where the prophet Hosea, he's imploring Israel to, quote, come back to your God, act with love and justice, and always depend on him. So why did Jesus overturn the tables in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem? For two closely related reasons to that of what we see in Hosea. First, the businesses were ripping off people with predatory exchange rates. That is a form of injustice. But second, and more importantly, the businesses had set themselves up in the part of the temple that was supposed to be reserved for non-Jews to come and worship and pray to God. But they effectively had prevented them from doing so. This was spiritual infidelity by preventing people from worshiping God. So Jesus gets intolerant about injustice towards the poor and the exclusion of religious outsiders who are trying to encounter God. But here's the thing. Christians of all theological and political stripes love to go to Jesus when he flips the tables. Why? Because then I can justify my obnoxious, self-righteous behavior with Jesus. Think about it. Every time you probably call another Christian out for being a jerk, you know, happens every now and then, nine out of ten times, the response is either going to be, well, Jesus flipped tables, or, well, Jesus called people names so I can do it too. Y'all, just be clear, every time... Jesus uses an insult towards someone, it is always, always towards the abusive and hypocritical religious leaders. Jesus never punches down, he only punches up. But look, let's also be honest. Are you really planning on calling someone a whitewashed tomb or a brood of vipers this holiday season? Some of you are like, yes, that is exactly the words I was planning on. Or are you really going to be the person who flips the Thanksgiving table, right? Like, don't treat the sweet potatoes like that. It's not right. Is there another example when it comes to this question of tolerance that we can see Jesus in the scriptures that might be particularly illuminating for us, particularly as we approach this holiday season? Let's go to Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 36. This is our primary reading. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. Now, most of the time when we read about who Jesus eats with, it's with tax collectors and other neighbors of ill repute, people who the religious establishment wouldn't be caught dead with. Jesus hangs out with notorious sinners Even though they might not be making the best life decisions, Jesus does not condemn them, but shows them tolerance. By the way, the only way I get to practice the virtue of tolerance is if first I actually disagree with you. 
to practice tolerance, I cannot agree with everything you say or do. Tolerance is the act of disagreeing respectfully. It is honoring someone's right to be potentially wrong. So why does Jesus practice tolerance towards sinners? Well, two reasons. First, some aren't actually the notorious sinners they're made out to be. They've been labeled this way by the religious establishment, perhaps because they've broken a religious tradition that has been elevated to some sort of moral law, but they actually haven't done anything that warrants them being called out by Jesus. Other people have accused them of sin, but I think most of us can probably recall a story ourselves where a very religious person accused someone of sinning. They might have even had a Bible verse to quote, but it turned out that sin in question was like dancing or having a beer or watching a Harry Potter movie, which these days could also be a sin if you talk to the right kind of woke person. However, For those who are actually notorious sinners, Jesus practices tolerance because condemnation is a minimally effective tool for achieving repentance and change. Let me say it another way. Condemnation is great at creating shame, very effective, but it rarely creates change. And we all intuitively know this, right? Someone comes down on you hard. Someone slams you, right? You, you might feel shame. You might even say sorry. But I'm just as likely to put up a defense of my behavior as problematic as it may be because feeling that potential shame is too painful to bear. So Jesus tolerates notorious sinners not because he doesn't care about their sin but because of one of the most effective motivations for change is actually experiencing the goodness of God. Because when I can experience God's goodness, it puts the rest of my life in context. It resets the scales. And so if I thought the bad stuff that I was doing was somehow good, it was somehow worthwhile, the goodness of God casts a light on it. And in that light, I can see how pale and fragile and devalued it is in contrast to the goodness of God. Jesus, as God incarnate then, manifests the goodness of God wherever he goes and helps people struggling with sin choose their own path of repentance, not because of condemnation or shame, but because they can finally see the possibility of something better. Friends, most of the time, the only way I can garner enough motivation to say no to a lesser sin is because I desire a greater virtue. But while most of the time Jesus is with irreligious people or people who have been excluded by the religious establishment, we see here today one of the more unusual occasions where Jesus accepts a dinner invite in the home of one of the religious leaders. I think this is really important for us to see because it demonstrates that Jesus' tolerance cuts both ways. 
Jesus has a posture of tolerance, not just towards problematic, irreligious people, but also problematic, religious people. Jesus came to save sinners, and that certainly includes religious people. But these aren't just any old religious people. These are some notoriously self-righteous, exclusive, intolerant religious people. And yet, Jesus' tolerance even applies to the intolerant. Jesus doesn't cancel the Pharisee just because he disagrees with his politics or his theology. Jesus wants this religious person to experience the goodness of God just as much as Jesus wants the stranger who's about to walk into the room to experience it. Let's go to verse 37. When a certain immoral woman from the city heard that he was eating there, he brought a, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume She knelt behind him at his feet weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. She kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Okay, so we have an unnamed immoral woman who shows up. Someone who has a reputation in the community for being a sinner. Also, can I just point out here that there is nowhere in this text that says she's a prostitute. Right, like we got this weird thing like in religious culture, like whenever we read in the Bible that like the woman is a sinner, we're like, oh, I know. Oh, I know, yeah, yeah, she's she's promiscuous. That's that's the only explanation. Y'all, this is so sexist, all right? And can we give women some credit here? Like they don't need to resort to prostitution to be just as good as sinning as men, all right? Like this is true feminism. Also, this woman is likely not a prostitute because of the following line. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Whatever the woman's sins are, they aren't readily noticeable in her physical presentation. She doesn't have the look of being a big sinner. And so the Pharisee actually views this as a test of Jesus. If he was a real prophet, he would be able to see past her appearances and know just how unethical this person is. But this is where we see the limits of Jesus' tolerance. Jesus will come into the home of the Pharisee. Jesus will eat with the Pharisee. Jesus will make polite conversation with the Pharisee. But this is where Jesus draws the line. It wasn't that the Pharisee believed wrongly about theology, though he did. Jesus had tolerance for that. It was that the Pharisee's theology caused him to relate wrongly to a person. And Jesus doesn't have tolerance for that. Let's go to verse 40. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Now, I just don't know if Simon's really naive here or he's bad at picking up on social cues, but y'all, like, if a boss or a parent or a partner, like, turns to you for seemingly no reason and says, I have something to say to you, it's not for no reason. Husbands, you know this, right? There, There is a reason, and it's probably not good. Simon is in trouble. Verse 41, 
when Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver, to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I I suppose the one whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, said Jesus. Now, one of the things that really strikes me about Jesus' response here is how gently he pushes back on Simon the Pharisee. While Jesus will eventually accurately blast the religious establishment with insults, the situation has not deteriorated to that point yet. There is still hope for some dialogue. Jesus is inviting anyone into discipleship who will listen. Even the Pharisees get access to Jesus' parables in the hope that it may somehow open up a window to the goodness of God. So let's continue in verse 44. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer to me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with a rare perfume. Now, to be clear, this is something of a call-out. Jesus is not at this dinner party of religious leaders so he can get invited back for more finger sandwiches and tea. That's not his interest. But notice, even in this call-out here, Jesus doesn't name-call anyone. He doesn't call Simon a religious bigot. He doesn't list Simon's sins in a form of whataboutism. Instead, Jesus focuses on affirming, validating, honoring the woman, the person who stands to be the most marginalized in this social situation. In fact, it may be a helpful distinction here that Jesus is not so much standing up to the Pharisee as Jesus is standing between the Pharisee and the woman. So yeah, if you're at Thanksgiving and that slightly racist uncle says something bigoted or cruel about a sibling or a relative or a friend, someone who stands to be spiritually or emotionally harmed by that rhetoric, I think this story gives us a clear mandate as followers of Jesus, it is important that we too stand between toxic people and the people most likely to be affected and harmed by their toxicity. But at the same time, we can do a disservice to that super woke cousin if we let her continue to stew in a sense of victimhood. That unnamed woman could have blamed, and with good reason, an oppressive system for the cause of all her woes. And yet, her ability to come to terms with her own sin as her own responsibility was a critical step, a necessary step for her experiencing the goodness of God through Jesus. But, unless anyone is being threatened by your supposed cousin's sense of victimhood, she probably doesn't need a call out like the uncle. She needs a gracious and gentle invitation to discipleship 
She needs your curiosity. She needs to see the goodness of God through you. But I think the conclusion of this story about a room full of religious leaders, this unnamed woman and Jesus helps frame our wider cultural struggle about when and when not to practice tolerance. Let's look at verse 47. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Whenever we are wrestling with questions about when to be tolerant and when to be intolerant when it comes to whatever sin, I think it is really important that we do a personal inventory first. Am I aware of the depth of how many sins I have committed in my own life And does the love in my life reflect the extent of forgiveness that I have been granted by Christ? Here's what I mean. To what extent have I been greedy, lustful, dishonest, cruel? And have I let the goodness of God's forgiveness for those sins sink in? But not only that. To what extent have I been racist, homophobic, sexist, narrow-minded? And have I let the goodness of God's forgiveness for those sins sink in yet? Why must I do that? Because I can fall into two kinds of spiritual ditches if I don't. Either... As long as I keep pretending my sin really isn't that bad, that it isn't unjustifiable harm against myself or someone else, I will treat people less like Jesus and more like the unnamed woman did before she became aware and to grips with her sin. I'm just going to let a lot of things slide with a lot of people that I probably shouldn't because, well, you know, who am I to judge? I'm doing all the same things. But on the other hand, if I keep pretending to myself that I'm an ethically superior person and that I've only needed a a few sins forgiven, otherwise I'm actually pretty great, I will also treat people less like Jesus and instead more like the Pharisees. I will be calling people out all the time because somebody's got a judge and well, it might as well be me. Those who believe they are forgiven little, will love little. And whether this lack of love, whether it comes from a sense of ethical relativism or a sense of ethical superiority, will always impair my discernment on tolerance and intolerance. It will always distort the clarity of my judgment on when to practice one or the other. But the kind of love that comes from being deeply forgiven brings spiritual and psychological wholeness. Let's close with verse 48. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man? He goes around forgiving sins. 
And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now when Jesus says the woman is saved, he's not saying the woman has been saved from hell or saved for heaven. Yes, I know this is how many of us are used to reading it in this way, but this is a very religious interpretation and it is a premature one at that. Jesus has not yet conquered hell and death in his resurrection. In reality here, the Greek means that this is a healing, that she has been made well. But you might be confused. Since this woman isn't suffering from any disease, then why is this the term? Because Jesus hasn't only affirmed, validated, or honored this woman. He's restored her sense of self. Nobody gets to label her a sinner anymore. Nobody gets to discriminate against her anymore. She gets to live her life in peace. That's such good news. But instead of realizing that this is the goodness of God at work, the religious leaders are indignant at what Jesus says here. Why are they indignant? Because they can no longer control this woman. She's come to grips with her sin and she has had her sin forgiven. They've lost their spiritual power over her. Not only that, but they're upset because they know that while most people can subjectively forgive sins, only God can objectively forgive sins. Only God can wipe it from the fabric of the cosmic universe. Who does this Jesus think he is? Friends, hear this good news. Because God is perfectly righteous and just. God will not, God cannot tolerate my sin indefinitely. But God's intolerance in reality is an extension of God's love. And so is God's forgiveness. Jesus, who lived, died, and rose again from death on my behalf, is the goodness of God on display. And it is only Jesus that has the power to forgive not just a little, not just for a few of my sins, but all of my sins, past, present, and future. But he doesn't do this just to save me from hell. But like the unnamed woman, he does this to heal me of wherever my life is fractured, to restore me to wholeness, to be the person that God has made me to be. May you too be forgiven greatly so that you can love greatly and discern wisely even around the Thanksgiving table. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. I'm slow to the punch this morning. Y'all have so many questions. Just... All the questions. All right, Colin. How do we practice tolerance as a church without it sliding into implicit approval? Oh, yeah. All right. So this is, I feel like, a constant moving target and a question that we always need to be asking here. Because 
I mean, if you know Parkside, like, we're known for being the more inclusive, more diverse church that has lots of different theological positions, political positions. And so, like, how do you, how do you say, like, okay, everyone's welcome, but, like, you still have a sense of coherency about your identity and who you are? Um, I think for me personally, as we think about discipleship, um, one, we, we, we trust the work of the Holy Spirit. I think one of the problems that churches get into, whether they're progressive or conservative, is that they want to impose the work of the Holy Spirit uh, on, with, and have their leadership do that. They're like, no, 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 I'm going to tell you how you need to change and what you're doing wrong, and instead saying, no, the Holy Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit's job, so let's trust the Spirit to do that. We're, we're going to focus on discipleship and modeling Jesus. Uh, the, so the, that's the first part. The second part is I think what we need to constantly do as an act of tolerance is not tolerance that's just permissive, like, oh, well, you just believe what you want to believe, do what you want to do, but tolerance is in connection with an invitation to discipleship. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is always inviting people into discipleship, so he's practicing tolerance because he realizes people have to have their own journey, right? But he's always inviting them into discipleship, and so I think that's what the church here has to model is, okay, you have a different view on this, you have a different practice for this in your life, cool, I'm going to invite you to follow Jesus, and we're going to work that out as we go. All right. The text never says that the woman asked for forgiveness for her sins. Are we to assume she did this through her actions, or is taking an inventory or confession not as important for forgiveness? Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah, okay, right? I, don't, I don't have a great answer for this. My, my <laughs> instinct is... I think there's a lot of stories where, where people come to Jesus and they're coming to Jesus in this really messy sort of way and Jesus knows their heart, Jesus knows their desire. And so even though the woman's not being like, Jesus, will you forgive me? Jesus knows like what she needs. And so he's like, I know, your, I know the needs of your heart right now. You are forgiven. So I don't think it doesn't mean you don't need to take an inventory in your life. I think that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. But Jesus is so good at meeting people at their place of need, even where they can't even speak it, because that's just the goodness of Jesus on display. All right. And I think a lot of us can probably relate to this one. I know I can. What can one do when they find themselves in a completely intractable conflict? Call them a brood of vipers. <laughs> That will that will that will create some space. Um, I don't think my sister will know what that means. Okay. Oh, all right. Um, oh, we're doing more confession this morning. That's great. Um, so we talk a lot about healthy boundaries here, right? So, and, and sometimes you can have those. Sometimes you can't. Um, but I, 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 again, I think this story is a helpful story in that, like, there were probably some things said at that dinner table with all the Pharisees that Jesus was like, nope. Nope, problematic, not, not right, right? And Jesus is like, that's not the conflict I need to have. Jesus only initiated the conflict when a person was threatened. And so I think you're just going to be in some conflicts with folks that are intractable, that cannot be resolved. And so it's, it's a matter of you having discernment about picking your battles wisely and letting some other stuff slide and, and creating boundaries and setting and trying to maintain peace, but then realizing there are some places where, yes, you will have to maybe even be the initiator of conflict um, if someone's uh, you know, emotional or spiritual uh, state is at risk. 
All right, thank you. I might be texting you over Thanksgiving. All right, yeah, sounds good. <laughs> those <laughs> phrases again. All right, if y'all have any more questions, and there were a ton that we didn't get to today, so please make sure you follow us on Facebook. Colin will address them tomorrow on Facebook Live. Awesome. We're also doing it now on Instagram too, so another reason to go on Instagram and follow us because we put content out like almost every other day, and so you can watch the, uh, just the questions on Instagram, which is kind of handy for some folks because I realize young people today, they don't even use Facebook anymore. It's like, that's an old person thing. That's like a me thing. So yeah, we're on Instagram now too. So friends, with that, let us now stand and join our voices together as we prepare for communion and sing the Sanctus.